My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this day. Episode 8. Tell us your story. When I was a young student reading or watching movies about lynchings in America's South or the Holocaust in Europe, I just couldn't grasp how anyone who witnessed or especially survived such horrors could ever just go on with their lives and not talk about it all the time to everyone. I just couldn't imagine how that was even possible. How could they not spend the rest of their lives shouting it from rooftops? After living in the Soviet Union under communist rule, though, I learned I had to forgive those who chose to remain silent, to just survive and protect the survival of those they love. You have to forgive those people who just try to forget and move on with their lives. In that Soviet reality, it was easy to understand why most people didn't tell their stories. You would endanger your life, and more importantly, the lives of those around you, if you did tell your story. So, they just tried to forget. Yet even then, in the Soviet Union, and still today in Putin's totalitarian Russia, there were, and are, the noble few, so brave, who stand up and tell their truth, knowing full well the consequences that will follow. That being said, what's our excuse in America? What's my excuse? Why for the past quarter century have I mostly kept my mouth shut, tried to forget, and just move on with my life? Intellectually, I understand how important it is that my generation of gay men tell our tragic stories. I have boundless respect for the Jewish community's approach to the Holocaust. Telling their stories is not an act of selfishness or even justice, though thank God it has helped them achieve some justice. It is an act of grace, a gift to coming generations, Jewish and especially non-Jewish. There is only one constant in the history of humanity, and that is that human history constantly repeats itself. The Jewish community has it right. The best way to break this cycle of man's inhumanity to man is by telling our stories loudly, clearly, and proudly to anyone and everyone who will listen. But from all directions, it feels like every aspect of society is constantly telling us to forget the horrific things my generation of gays experienced. Or maybe the correct verb would be survived. The horrific things a few of us survived. Take those men, for example, who regularly performed acts of violence against homosexuals. Gay bashing was a socially acceptable form of Saturday night entertainment for generations in America, and countless LGBTQs were beaten and even murdered. Remember Matthew Shepard? Talk about acts of grace. Look what Matthew's sainted parents, Judy and Dennis, have accomplished by telling their story. Those brutal monsters who beat that sweet, innocent young man, then tied him to a fence and left him there to die? I'm sure they were none too happy when Judy and Dennis started telling their story. As a side note, 
I've met Judy Shepard on many occasions. Do you know that joke? Wanting someone beside you the next time you're in a dark alley? Yeah. Well, the next time I'm in some back alleys of Congress trying to get some gay rights bill passed, that's who I want by my side. Judy Shepard. That blessed woman is a kind, sweet, and gentle force of nature. For decades, the police knew what was happening to homosexuals. And not only did they do nothing to stop it, but hell, let's be honest. Oftentimes, they were the ones beating us, robbing us, extorting us, blackmailing us, and yes, even murdering us. They certainly don't want us to remember. They don't want us to tell our stories. Even some of our present-day allies, many of whom stood by for decades and did nothing, even though they knew what was happening to us was wrong. Do they want to be reminded how long it took for them to finally stand up and come to our aid after most of our friends were already dead or dying of AIDS? Even my gay friends, some of them from my own generation, tell me to just focus on living a happy life. We can't change the past. Remember the good times, they tell me. Remember how much fun we had and try to move forward. There's a part of me that agrees. We did have fun. And of course I'd rather remember those times. I don't want to relive those horrible tragedies. I don't want to recall that by the age of 30, the majority of my friends were already dead. Who wants to remember that? I even had one young gay man tell me, I shouldn't blame Ronald Reagan, Jesse Helms, Anita Bryant, or those conservative leaders back then because it was a different time. Everyone felt that way about gay men then. They didn't really do anything wrong. That's just the way it was. Yeah, sure. Tell that to all my dead friends. Tell that to my army of gay angels. Europeans didn't respond to AIDS like the Americans. Neither did the Canadians. The rest of the civilized world was horrified by America's response to AIDS. So what happened here in America? What is it about so-called Christian right conservatives in this country specifically that made them react to gays and AIDS the way they did? Truth be told, even my own psyche wants me to forget. It's a sort of survival mechanism. I don't want to remember having my face and clothes and hair covered in the spit of some high school football team that happened to get on the L train the same time my friends and I did. I don't want to remember hiding behind a dumpster in some back alley, praying that my friends also found somewhere safe to hide from that horrible mob of gay bashers that was waiting for us outside the gay bar. I don't want to remember watching a man beaten to death knowing that if I had tried to do anything to help him, they would have killed me too. I wish I could forget how I hysterically begged the cop to use his gun to stop the beating before it was too late, before he was dead. I don't want to remember how the armed policeman standing right next to me refused to do anything. Actually, I would give anything to forget the smile and passive look of satisfaction on the cop's face who just folded his arms and said, Uh, I have to wait for backup. 
as we both watched and heard the sound of a man's skull explode when hit by a 2x4. I would give anything to somehow forget what that sounds like. Then I remember my transgender friends today, right now, who still live in fear for their safety, who still struggle to find jobs or even receive proper health care. The night before attending the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots in New York, I went to a rally to commemorate the murder of a young transgender woman in Washington, D.C. It's still happening. Maybe not to me as a gay man, but to my transgender brothers and sisters, it's still happening. And if we don't tell our stories, it will never stop. People need to remember the high cost of hatred. Those conservative pundits spewing hatred on Fox News, they don't have to pay the price of their hatred. We do. Those transgender children down here on the ground with the rest of us, they pay the price. My generation of gays and today's transgender children paid and are still paying the price of other people's hatred, bigotry, and intolerance. It is our responsibility, the LGBTQ community's duty, to tell our stories and help stop the cycle of man's inhumanity to man. As I watch the news today in America, I see a woman's right to choose being taken away. In spite of the fact that nearly three out of four Americans agree women should have control over their own bodies. When was the last time 70% of Americans agreed on anything? But in spite of that, they still took away a woman's right to choose. The Supreme Court has taken away a woman's right to choose, but has done so in a way that lays the groundwork to take away LGBTQ rights to equality, like our right to marry. I even see them laying the groundwork to call into question the right to interracial marriages. Are you fucking kidding me? Seriously, don't you think it's time we all join hands, stand up, and scream no more? This must stop. We can't let history repeat itself. The Jewish community has it right, especially now, as American history starts singing its horrific rhymes. We must all follow the Jewish community's noble example. It is vital that we never forget the things that happened to us because they are quite literally laying the groundwork to start doing those things to us again. We must stand up, those few of my generation who survived, and tell our stories and remind all our allies how important it is to remember, to never forget. If we do not, history will repeat itself yet again. So here goes. A decade ago, in a prominently gay gym in Salt Lake City, Utah, a group of five men all around my age started chatting in the locker room. The conversation turned to the AIDS crisis. I told them the story of a couple I knew in New York. Well, actually, I knew half the couple. By the time I met Jim, his partner Mark was already dead. They were together for 15 years. Mark had been a successful attorney, and they owned a beautiful apartment near Gramercy Park. 
When Mark started to get sick, Jim convinced Mark how important it was spiritually for him to reconcile with his estranged family before he died. When Mark finally agreed, Jim arranged everything for them. He purchased their airline tickets and flew Mark's parents from somewhere in the Bible Belt to visit their gay son on his deathbed in New York. The day after Mark's parents arrived, Jim went straight to the hospital after work, as he had done every day since Mark was hospitalized. When he got there that day, he was met by security and told he was no longer allowed to visit his partner of 15 years. Because legally speaking, Mark's parents, whom he had not seen for over 20 years, were the ones who had the legal right to make that decision. Devastated, Jim went home only to discover the locks had been changed. Jim had opened his home to these people, paid their airfare to come there, but since the apartment was in Mark's name, his parents had the legal right not only to prevent Mark from being by the side of his partner for 15 years as he lay dying, but they also had the legal right to make him homeless and liquidate the assets Mark and Jim had built together for 15 years. Jim never saw Mark again. Those good God-fearing American Christian parents believed that Jim had turned their son gay. I guess that's how they justified their cruel, unchristlike, immoral behavior, and yes, let's call it for what it was, their theft. Under legal supervision, Jim was allowed to collect two boxes of personal effects before Mark's Christian parents liquidated their assets and shipped Mark's body back to America's Christian heartland. Jim wasn't even allowed to attend the funeral. When I told that story to four gay men around my age, every single one of them knew at least one person to whom the same thing had happened. Gay lawyers literally built entire law practices around trying to legally protect the rights and property of surviving partners whose boyfriends were dying or had died of AIDS. Without very careful legal planning, surviving partners had no rights. Our partnerships were not legally recognized and wills were easily contested in a court system that hated homosexuals. When we were lucky, some of the nurses would call us after the families had left and sneak us in to visit our dying friends after visiting hours were over so we wouldn't be arrested. They were our angels. Those countless nameless nurses, many of whom took pay cuts and volunteered to work in the AIDS wards. My brother-in-law Peter's mother, my sister Zan's mother-in-law, is one of these remarkable nurses. She didn't have to work. She had the means to stay home, but she saw a need and chose to help those of us with AIDS when no one else would. Sometimes, I think those nurses were the only ones who had it worse than us, and God bless them. They deserve a monument, and how I wish they would tell their stories. As a very young man, I wasn't a huge fan of leather bars. But I had a crush on the actor Rupert Everett, and I knew he hung out at a particular leather bar in New York's meatpacking district. So when I found myself with a free weekend during a work trip to New York, I thought I'd check it out. As I approached the bar, I suddenly heard and saw this young man across the street running and screaming for help. He was being chased by four high school-age kids wielding two-by-fours. They cornered him and forced him into an alley and started beating him. 
I ran into the bar and told them to call the police. And when I came back out, there was already a policeman there. Thank God, I thought. But he was just standing there, with his arms crossed, with this smug, passive look on his face. Why aren't you doing something, I begged him. Uh, I have to wait for backup. He casually said as if he were watching a jaywalker or a shoplifter. He'll be dead by then. You have a gun. All you have to do is draw your gun and they'll run. Please do something, anything, before they kill this guy. That's when I heard the most horrific, haunting sound imaginable. The sound of a human skull being split open like a ripe melon when hit by a two-by-four. It honestly sounds like an SUV running over and exploding a sealed plastic gallon of milk, combined with the sound of splattering blood as it saturated the two-by-four and the young man beating him in an aerosol of crimson red. When the bashers heard a bunch of sirens coming closer, they finally dropped their two-by-fours and ran off. But it was too late. This guy was a motionless mangle of blood and gore in the middle of the alley. I tried to tell the paramedics what I saw, but they waved me off and told me to talk to the cops. But the cops didn't care. I tried, but they wouldn't even take my statement. Can privileged white heterosexual Americans ever understand what it feels like to know the police we pay for with our taxes were not there to protect us? Nor were the courts. No one was. As a matter of fact, in many cases, we, as taxpayers, were quite literally paying the salaries of the men who persecuted and even murdered out gay men. Racial minorities in America understand what that feels like. How can we make privileged white Americans understand what it feels like to watch a man beaten to death and know there is no way you can help him? There is no place you can go for protection to receive justice, prevention, or even report the crime. Because you and your life doesn't matter. During the AIDS crisis, there were blogs where we listed the names and interests of those who died. The point being, if two guys belonged to the same club, worked at the same place, lived on the same block, or worked out at the same gym, this helped us avoid scheduling two funerals at the same time so we didn't force people to choose which friend's funeral to attend. That's a real concern when you have to go to two or three funerals a week every week for 15 to 20 years. There were blogs explaining how to kill ourselves with the least amount of discomfort while protecting our friends from any legal liability for our deaths. Some of our friends didn't want to put themselves, their families, or us through the pain of watching them slowly die of AIDS, and they chose to take their own lives before they got too sick. Usually when they did this, we would have a sort of going-away party for them. We called them It's My Party Parties, from the lyrics of the 1963 pop classic It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To. But for us, the lyrics were a little different. It's my party and I'll die if I want to, die if I want to, die if I want to. You would die too if this happened to you. Bop, 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 bop. We tell our friends we love them, say goodbye, tell funny stories, joke a little, 
dance a little, toast a little, and cry a little. And then all but one of us would leave. Our friend would take his pills, and the one person would stay with him until he fell asleep, then quickly leave before he died, so he wouldn't be legally liable for our friend's death. But today, this story has a happy ending. Years later, in the very same bar where I witnessed that horrific beating, I took a seat while I tried to get the bartender's attention to order a drink. I started chatting with the guy sitting next to me. It was Providence that put me in that chair, and Providence that prompted me to tell the story of that horrific night so many years before. You'll never guess who it was. He put his hands on mine as tears started welling up in his eyes and he said, Stop! He didn't die. That was me, and I survived. He asked me to tell him what I had seen that night, because the police told him there were no witnesses. So I told him what I saw, and he told me his story. He lost an eye and a leg. He showed me his prosthetic leg, his glass eye, the crisscross of scars on his head, and bragged about his cane collection. He was in a coma for months. He suffered a traumatic brain injury. It took him months to learn to walk and talk again, and years to recover his memory. But he survived to tell me his story, as I now tell you mine. Please, tell us your stories. It is the only way to stop this endless cycle of man's inhumanity to man. Stand up, loud and proud, and tell your story to anyone and everyone who will listen. It is a noble act of grace, and it is our responsibility to the LGBTQ generations who follow us. Tell us your story. My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. <laughs>